And we are starting a new series called Genesis, where we're going to be going through the whole book of Genesis. And I'm excited because I actually love the book of Genesis. There's so many stories and things we learn about ourselves and humanity, but most importantly, what we learn about God, his character, his nature, his love, his grace, right from the very beginning. This is going to be a six-week series where we step through Genesis. And what we're going to do is we're going to continue this series over three years. So what we'll do is we'll do a six-week series now. We'll, we'll stop. And then next year, we'll pick it up again. And we'll continue again with another series. And the year after that, we'll pick it up again until we go through the entire book of Genesis. We're doing that because we really believe that as Christians, we need to understand the entire Bible, especially the beginning. So as Christians, shouldn't we just focus on Jesus in the New Testament? Like, why are we going through Genesis over three years? Well, because we need to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ, it actually starts in Genesis. It doesn't start in the New Testament. And you're thinking, Scott, hang on, have you ever read the Bible? Of course it starts in the New Testament. No, it doesn't. The revealing of God and the good news of Jesus through salvation starts in Genesis 1.1. Jesus himself, he actually claimed this when he was talking to the religious rulers of his time when he was walking the earth. He says to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me and you won't come to me that you can have life. He's like, those Old Testament scriptures, the ones you know, and these religious rulers, they knew them off by heart. They literally knew the first five books of the Bible off by heart. He's saying those Old Testaments, those scriptures, they're all about me. You guys don't get it. So we see here that even Jesus himself is talking about the scriptures. He's talking about it's all about God and who he is. And we need to understand when Jesus said that, there was no New Testament written. That was going to come much later on. So if that's true, we should study the Old Testament and learn about who God is and learn the gospel at a deeper deeper level. But before we do that, I'd love to pray. So would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your creation account. We thank you so much that... Jesus, it testifies of you. The whole entire Bible is about you, God, your character, your nature, your story of salvation, about your love and grace. Lord, I pray that you would help me preach your truth today. You'd speak to me and through me. Not that they would look to me, but they would only look to you, Jesus, the one who brings life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to kick off with Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I love that it starts with God because we need to understand in ancient times, there were lots of gods. There were thousands of gods. There were lots of demigods that people used to worship and they were gods of thunder, of lightning, of the underworld, of fertility, gods of water and rain, all these little demigods and it depended on what you wanted of what god you actually went and worshipped. So if I wanted kids, I'd go to the fertility god and make an offering and pray to that God because I wanted to get something. But the Bible is very unique. The Jewish thought was there was one God. There is one God who created the heavens and the earth. There is no gods beside him. There's none before him, none after him. We start with this one awesome God. So the Bible tells us who the Bible is about. It tells us right in the beginning. It's about God's character, his nature, and his plan of salvation. It's actually all about God. And if we're reading the Bible to try and find something we can get out of it, like health, wealth, and prosperity, and things like that, we've actually missed the whole point of the Bible. You see, the Bible reveals God himself, his plan for humanity, 
And the more we know God and love his, his word, the more we're actually transformed in his likeness. Why? Because the more you know someone, the more you know their will in every situation, right? Like if someone says to me, hey, does Georgie, your wife, want some KFC? I'll be like, no, 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 she does not want KFC. She hates it. Me, on the other hand, you can buy me a bucket any day of the week. I'll take the whole thing. But she doesn't like it, right? She hates KFC. How do I know that? Because I know her, right? I have a relationship with her. I know her will. And by the way, Colonel Sanders, he actually um, became a Christian late in life, so I can't wait to get to heaven to taste that original, original KFC. Like, imagine he's up there frying it up. I'm like, oh, dude, I love you. Jesus more, but I love Colonel Sanders too. So I know my wife's will because I have a relationship with her. But if I'm selfish, and I'm selfish in, in myself, and it's all about what I can get out of my wife, then I won't know what she, she cares for. I don't know what her will is. I don't know what she would like in situations because it would be all about me. And to be honest, we have lots of Christians that are so focused on themselves and what they can actually get out of God, they don't know God's will. Often I sit down with um, different people for different pastoral concerns, and I often sit down with males, uh, generally the reason, and they'll say, oh, I want to leave my wife because I want to go with someone at work. And I'll say, okay, um, what does God say when you pray about that? Oh, I don't pray about that. I'm like, oh, okay. What does God's word say about that? What's God's will for you in that situation? Oh, I don't know. I don't care. I'm like, okay, well, let me tell you. It says in the Bible that you're meant to love your wife like Christ loved the church and give yourself up for her. So what does that mean? It means Jesus sacrificed for the church, right? The church didn't love him. It wasn't like your wife's got to do all these things and then you love her. It's like, no, you love her unconditionally. You love her like Jesus, right? And he's like, oh, I don't care about that. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, and this person is meant to be a Christian, right? He's meant to be following Jesus, yet he has no idea what Jesus says about that situation, nor does he know God's will in there. Why? Because some people think that the Bible is all about themselves. They want to get out of jail free card, right? They want to see you find a verse that says, no, I can do this and enter into my sin. But it's all about God. In the beginning, God. And I love that not only it starts with God, but it also starts with revealing the Trinity to us. The, the, the nature of God, who is one God, three persons. We see the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed in the first three verses. The very first three. <clears throat> so first one starts with, in the beginning, God. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So we have the created God here. Verse 2, it says, and then the Spirit, the Ruach, the breath of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. We have the Holy Spirit here hovering over the face of the waters of the earth in creation. And then in verse 3 it says, Then God, Elohim, said, Amar, let there be light, and there was light. So the creative power of God is the Word of God. His Word goes forth and creates. The Word of God goes and creates. It's the power and the Word of God that creates all things. And we know that the Word of God is Jesus, right? And we know that Jesus is the Word of God because it's what John writes at the start of his gospel in the Gospel of John. He actually starts his gospel very similar way to Genesis. So we would know that the Word of God is linked back to the very start. He says, in the beginning, just like Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. 
And in verse 14, he continues, he said, And that word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love it here. In the first three verses of Genesis, we have Father, Son, and Spirit, all part of this creative process. It all starts with God. But now, before we proceed any further, we actually need to know the context of who this text is written to and by, and what literary form it's written in. So we can have an understanding of the text fully. You see, we Westerners think that everything is written to us, right? And we think in literal terms. We think literally when we look at text. It's just the way we've been taught. It's not our fault. But what we need to do is we need to understand the culture and the context of who the Bible is written to. Because the Israelites, the people this was written by and to, have a totally different mindset than 21st century Westerners, us. And therefore, it's, the scriptures are written in a different mindset too. So what's the context of Genesis 1? Well, it's written in the time of Moses. So even in the Bible, it attests that Moses was the writer or bringing together of, of, the, of the Old Testament, or the first five books of the Bible. So that's about 1500 BC. Now at this stage, they had just come out of the land of Egypt. They had been captives there, slaves for 400 years. God calls Moses to lead them out of captivity. So he leads them out of captivity there at Mount Sinai. Moses receives the word. He receives uh, the, the Ten Commandments and the law. And he comes down and he starts writing all that down. And so they start getting all these different writings together. Now we know that there are different editors in the Old Testament. You can tell by the way it's written. So it wasn't Moses sitting down and writing it, but he would have had scribes. He would have said, this is what God said, and the scribes would have been writing it down. There would have been oral traditions that they would have passed down through generations that Moses would have said, all right, well, you write on the creation account, you write on Abraham, and so they bring all those writings together. And what we see in the first five books of the Bible. So the Old Testament was written by Jewish people for Jewish people. And so for us to understand that text fully, we need to look at Scripture through a Jewish lens and through their thought processes. And there are some huge differences in the thought processes between Westerners like you and I and Easterners from the Middle East. So one of them is Westerners, we love facts, right? We love what happened, how did it happen? Like, I like facts. We're very intellectual. So when we're looking at text, when we're looking at our news, our news is very facts-based, how it happened and when it happened, all that sort of stuff. Whereas an Easterner, their thought process is different. They think in stories and pictures they're more worried about the why behind the text than what happened, like what are the facts. They're looking for experience. They like to feel what was happening and they want to learn something out of it. Like if I said to a Westerner, define God for me. A Westerner will go, well, God is sovereign. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. These are all terminologies that have a clear defined definition. Because we like that, right? We like to put God in a little box that's clearly defined. There's no gray areas. So give me all those. Give me all these descriptors that are just clearly defined. You ask an Easterner who God is, and they'll say, he's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my ever-present help. They're speaking from this place of experience, of feeling, of knowing. And as Westerners, we go, what does that mean? Fortress. Like, explain that to me. That doesn't fit in my nice little neat box of omnipresence and all that sort of stuff. And we need to know in the scriptures as well, the Jewish people, there's so many different ways they look at it. Numbers are really important to Jewish people. We look at numbers as quantitative, right? If it says someone had seven sons, we go, okay, you had seven sons. That would have been hard work, having that many kids. 
Whereas Jewish people see if you had seven sons, you had the perfect number. That means you were blessed. Like God blessed you because you had seven sons. That's amazing. Because there was six days of creation and God made the perfect work and rested on the seventh. We see in Revelation the seven spirits of God. So to them, numbers are really, really important. Whereas we're just like, oh, okay, so he had seven sons. What's the big deal? Also, in the Jewish mindset, they are communal in that, how they think. So when they pray, you will notice, notice in the scriptures that they pray communal prayers. So when the prophets pray, they'll say, God, we have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. Forgive us, Lord, for our sin. Whereas in the Western world, we are very eye-centered, right? You hear it in our worship music. You hear it in our prayers. God, I've sinned. I'm not worried about anyone else. It's kind of like what I've done. So I've just got to sort that out with you. So they have these different ways that we look at Scripture. So we need to know as Westerners, we need to read the Old Testament. We need not only to read with our lens, but we need to read with the lens of an Easterner. Look for the why. Look for the experience. Look for the the feeling the author is trying to relay to the reader because that's the way the text is written. And the way we look at this, imagine a, a house and there's a western side window and there's an eastern side window. Now we're standing on the western side looking through the window, right? And we're looking in and we're going, oh yeah, I noticed all that stuff. Everything we see is true. Everything we see is real. So it's not that it's not real, it's not true. But what happens when you go around the eastern side and you're looking through the eastern window? You have a different perspective, right? What you see through the eastern window, you can't see from the western window. They're like, oh, I didn't know there was a table behind the couch. Oh, look, there was a painting on the wall that was on the wall that I was looking through. So when we look through the two different windows, the two different lenses, we get a greater understanding of the text. So the question is, the next question is, what is the literary form of Genesis? Well, the literary form of Genesis is actually written in a poetic form, and this is agreed upon by biblical scholars across the board. It's not a scientific report or account of creation like Westerners would like it to be and where we would actually write it. We want Genesis to be written scientifically, like a report that what happened and how did it happen. Just give me the facts. That's what we want. But the Jewish writers wrote Genesis in a poetic form because they wanted to express the why. They wanted to express it in pictures and experience. They want you to discover a deeper truth, which I'll show you later. So to be clear, Genesis 1 is not a scientific report on how creation came about. And don't get sucked into a debate with, with an atheist scientist around, is it like a scientific report? Because it's not. You'll actually lose that debate. You'll actually lose it, because that's not the intention of the text. And this all could be a shock to you. I remember in Bible college, it was a shock to me, right? I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on a second. <laughs> it's what? Poetic form? Because... What we're saying is, oh, if it's in poetic form, then, it's, then it might not be true. Now, that does not mean that Genesis is not true. You can write truth into, poet, into a poetic nature, into a poetic literature. Like, just because someone says, oh, well, it might not be six days, it might be a thousand years. Okay, do you know what? God can create in six days. Like, we see that in when Jesus was healing people. Someone have a bad knee or whatever, or leprosy. That would take a long time to heal. Leprosy usually wasn't be able to heal, but Jesus would heal in an instant. So because God is the God of time, space, and matter, it's a creation of his, he has full control of it. So if God wanted to create in one day, he can. But that's not the point of this text. That's not the reason why this text is written. They wanted to tell a story. 
They wanted to point you to a main point, and the way they would do that is with poetry and a thing called chiasms. And to prove my point with the text, that it's not a scientific report, let's look at the scriptures in the order of creation. In day one, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And he saw the light, it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day, and he called the darkness night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. So we see day one, he's creating light, he's separating from the darkness, and he calls it day and night. Problem is, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that actually emit light wasn't created until day four. So we see in day four, it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from night, and let there be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Let them be lights in the firmament, the heavens to give light in the earth. God saw the two great lights, the one the day, which is the sun, and the moon, and then he created the stars also. So he creates all this stuff that actually emits light on day four. Not only this, but how do you have a morning and evening or an evening and morning with no sun in day one, two, and three? Like, how do you count a day that way? Scientifically, a day is measured by the rotation of the earth around the sun, right? So the earth's spinning, we get a day, and it keeps moving around the sun. There was no sun until day four. This is just one example that the text doesn't line up scientifically, but that's okay because the text, when we know it's not a scientific report, then we know that that's not what we're worried about. Now, let me say this. The Bible is clear that God is like there is no darkness in him. In Revelation, it says that there will be no need for a sun because the glory of the Lord will shine forth. So do you know what? The light could have been there because God was there, right? But if we're trying to, to argue this on a scientific basis, we can't. So what's going on? Well, this poem, poem is written in a form of writing that's common to Jewish writing. It's used throughout the Bible. There's thousands of them in the Bible. When you learn this, they're absolutely everywhere. And they're called chiasms. So what's a chiasm? A chiasm is a writing style that uses a unique repetition pattern for clarification and emphasis. It's this repetition of form of writing appears in Genesis 1 and it points to a deeper meaning of the text. So Jesus actually uses a chiasm. He says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. So he's gone Sabbath, man, man, Sabbath. So sometimes a chiasm can be A, B, C, C, B, A. So it mirrors, but backwards. Another way a chiasm can be written is A, B, C, A, B, C. And they do this because there is a deeper meaning in the text. And you'll see on the next slide that what they do is they come down to a point. And what the Jewish writer wants you to discover is what's at that point. What's in the middle of this whole creation, of this whole creation account? And the point of the chasm is to point to this deeper meaning of the story, the why of the narrative. And we're meant to actually discover that. See, in Jewish thought, they want you to discover who God is, not just be a transfer of information like we Westerners like. It's like, tell me what God's doing. They just want you to discover it personally. So that's where the diagram meets is where we find the gold. So in Genesis 1 we see that God creates light and separates darkness from light. And then the sun and the stars and the moon are created on day four. So day one corresponds with day four. And on day two, God separates the waters on the earth from the water in the sky. And on day five, he fills the water with fish and he fills the sky with birds. So day two corresponds with day five. And on day three, God creates dry land. He separates the dry land from the water. And then on day six, he actually creates all the animals and humanity go on that land. So 
we see again day three corresponds with day six. And you'll see in the next slide that we have three days of separation, one, two, and three, and then we have three days of filling, the corresponding separations. This is the chiasm that we find here in Genesis 1. So what is the chiasm pointing to? Well, if you go to the dead center of the chiasm, when you count the words, the Hebrew word moed comes out. And moed is one of four words that's used in the Hebrew to translate Sabbath or appointed time or sacred season, as Katie said. These are times where, like Sabbath is a holy day. So it's a holy day unto the Lord where you will rest. You will sit back and rest. And these seasons, these holy seasons, were days where they would, they would worship God, where they would worship what he'd done, bringing them out of captivity. They would have feasts. They'd spend time with family and friends in remembering what God had done. It had nothing to do with work. It was all about rest. So we look in the middle of this chiasm, and it's about rest. Well, why is it pointing to rest? Well, again, we've got to look at the context of who is, who's writing it and who it's written to. So at that time, who'd come out of, of Israel as slaves, as slaves? It was the Israelites, right? So they'd been in captivity for 400 years, the better part of 400 years. They'd been slaves. And what do you do as a slave? You work, right? You work seven days a week, sun up to sundown. It's what you can produce. Like, if you're producing, you're good. If you can't produce something, I'm going to whip you and make you produce. And if I can't go any further, I'll kill you. So your value and your worth are in what you can produce. This is all they've known for 400 years. So all they've known is work, 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 and that's where you find your value in. That's what we would call the kingdom of Egypt. The understanding of the kingdom of Egypt is you work, and that's all you are. You are what you produce. But God's saying here in Genesis 1, that's not true. That's not true at all. The kingdom of God is not how you, what you can produce. The kingdom of God is something totally different. What God's saying in Genesis 1, you don't work for rest, you work from rest. You don't work for my love, you, work f- you don't work for my love, you work from my love. You don't find your identity from what you produce, you find your identity in what, who God says you are and how he sees you. I mean, look at Genesis The way the days are set up, it says the evening and the morning were the first day. That doesn't make sense to us, right? Because we see the days as the morning as the start of the day. But God's saying, no, 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 you need to understand you start from a place of rest. You start from resting in me. You start with family. You start with a meal. You start with sleep and you work from that place. It's not about what you produce. It's about who you are. And this was an amazing revelation to the children of Israel because they'd known only the kingdom of Egypt. And this is what we struggle with today, right? That's how we start our work week. We start our day with work. And if we've done enough, if we've produced enough, we think we're okay to rest. And if we haven't done enough, we don't think we've done enough, we'll keep working into the hours of the night and we'll reject family and our kids and all that stuff. We'll just keep going. Why? Because we have an Egyptian kingdom mindset. That sometimes we think, well, I am what I produce. It's my accomplishments. It's what I've produced today that is who I am. It's my job is who I am. And the kingdom of God says, your job is not who you are. You are who I say you are. You are my son and daughter that I've created in my image. So why don't we rest in what God says we are? You know, you are unique and you are loved and you're special over all creation. Genesis 1 teaches us that we are unique in all creation. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. 
It says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You are his crowning pinnacle. Humanity was his crowning of creation. And I love here, again, we see the Trinitarian nature of God. He says, let's make mankind in our image. Who's he talking to? He's not talking to the angels because it says, in the image of God, he created them. He's talking to God. He's saying to the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's create mankind in, in our image, that they would reflect us. You were made in the image of God to reflect the character and the nature of God to the world and have dominion over it and rule over it like God would. Out of a place of love, of pure love. And we have these attributes of God, right? We're made in his image. We're able to love. We're able to have free will. Where we can choose to love or not. We are creative. I mean, we look at the creation count and everything God created. And look at what we've created as humanity. Look at the amazing creative minds that we have that no other species on the earth has. We are unique compared to the rest of what God has created. And it's interesting because when he creates all the other elements of the earth and creation, he says, it's good, it's good. And then he creates humanity and he says, then God saw everything he made and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. He looks at his creation, he says, it's good. And then he looks at humanity and he goes, that's very good. Like God looks at you and goes, you're amazing. I love you. You are my crowning glory of creation. When I look at you, I adore you. I love you. You're amazing in his eyes. You are precious. Your life is precious. And what did God do after that? He rested. He sat back on the seventh day and just went, wow, this is cool. Look at that. Look what I've done. He's in love with it. But here's the problem. God made everything perfect and humanity, he made that perfect. But later we will discover that humanity rejects God's love and falls into sin. You see, they didn't rest in God's goodness. They didn't rest in God's faithfulness. They didn't rest in trusting God and trusting the story, trusting God for all they needed. But here's the good news. God actually knew this would happen. And he knew if he gave humanity free will to trust him or not to trust him, that we would want to be our own gods. But he loves us so much, he had a plan for us that he would actually come and die for humanity to restore us back to that position before we sin. In Revelation, we see that it says the Lamb of God, talking about Jesus, Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. God had this redemptive plan to come and save us from our sin. So this perfect creation was what God intended and Jesus was sent to restore us back to this created order. Think about this for a moment. The God that created the universe, the Word of God, was willing to come and suffer for you, that you would be born again, that you would be restored back to him. Like Psalm 19, this is one of my favorite verses to put it in perspective. It says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And I sit outside and I look up into the stars and I go, man, look at the size of that. Look at the awesomeness of that. Look how many trillions of stars up there. And that declares your glory. 
Like I can't even comprehend the majesty and the power that is out there. And that declares your glory. Like as scientists, we build telescopes and we go, look, there's trillions of stars and galaxies. And they build a bigger telescope and there's trillions more. And they build a bigger telescope and there's trillions more. And we're finding more and more and more. And that declares your glory. That declares your power. Like just my little pea brain mind when I sit there and think, space goes on forever. Like how? I can't work that out. And then I think, well, even if there was a wall where it stopped, there'd have to be something on the other side. And that trips me out even more, right? But the heavens declare the glory of God. It goes on forever. God's glory and power is endless, absolutely endless. And I can't comprehend the heavens, and nor could I ever. And I therefore, my little pea brain can't comprehend the majesty and the glory and the power of God. If I could fit God into my little finite brain, then he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be worth worshipping. And God is far beyond what we could ever comprehend. His power, his glory, his majesty, his thoughts are far beyond human comprehension. We see this in Isaiah 55. He says, this is God speaking, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For if the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Again, the heavens are higher than as as far as that goes, which is forever. That's how far apart we are. That's how far apart we are in thoughts and your comprehension. I am far beyond what you could ever imagine or dream. Man, just thinking about this, it causes me to worship, right? And just think for one moment, that awesome God that we can't even begin to comprehend. He created everything, the stars, the moon, the galaxies, everything came to suffer and die for you. You, a tiny speck in all creation. God loves that tiny speck so much that even though his glory is far beyond, he comes in the form of a man, in the form of Jesus Christ. He's fully man, fully God, feels what it's like to have pain and suffering, lets his own tiny little minute creation spit on him, abuse him, reject him, goes to the cross and takes on the sin of the entire world for you and me. He says, no, I'm going to stand in this place where we should have stood. We should have stood in judgment because of our sin. Jesus goes, no, I'll come and take that. And anyone who believes in me, anyone who puts their faith and trust and rest in me, I will give eternal life. That awesome God worried about a tiny little speck of you and me. This is the message of Genesis 1. You, that tiny speck, you are so loved and so unique and so precious to that awesome God. The message of Genesis is one that we would trust the story. We would trust God. We'd rest in God's love. And his love is displayed through the story of the gospel. And as God completed the perfect work in Genesis 1 of creation, he sat back on the seventh day and he rested and he enjoyed it. Jesus through the cross has completed the perfect work of salvation for us. So we can rest in God's perfect work. So we can work from a place of forgiveness. We can work from a place of acceptance. We can work from a place of God's love. We can work from a place of rest in the faithfulness and the goodness of God through the gospel. We get to rest from trying to earn our way into heaven. We get to rest from trying to earn God's love because Jesus has done all the work for us for salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. For all that believe. We're freely given all those things. Just like at the beginning, God freely gave 
Adam and Eve, all of creation. The creation story is not about how, but why. Why did God create the earth? The earth was created to reflect the awesomeness and the beauty and the design and the nature of God. God created it and it was good. And he created humanity and it was very good. You are created to reflect the image of God to the world. So does your life reflect the image of God? Does it reflect God's love to others? Do you trust the story? Do you trust the gospel? Do you find rest in God and God alone? Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, God, for your awesomeness. We thank you for your creation. We thank you that the heavens declare your glory, God, that we couldn't even begin to comprehend what that means. That one day when we stand before you, we will just be awestruck of your awesomeness, your power, but not only that, God, your grace. Maybe we so awestruck, not only of your power, but your love for us, God. And may we, as your sons and daughters, may we walk in the fullness that you've brought us, Jesus, through the cross, that we'd be empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would reflect your character, your nature, your goodness. Lord, we repent when we haven't done that. Lord, help us walk in grace, truth, and love. And if you're sitting there and you've never understood that the God of heaven and earth that created all these things, that awesome God cares so much about you, that you are so loved, that you are not insignificant, that he was willing to step into humanity to save you. He's looking to restore you today. He wants to forgive you. He wants to love you. He wants to call you his son or his daughter. He wants to restore you back to the beginning. He wants to spend eternity with you because he loves you. If that's you today, all you need to do is just pray this prayer. We need to recognize that it's only through Jesus Christ. So pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love me so much. I believe Jesus died, that he died for my sins. Lord, I repent, forgive me of my sin. And Lord, I ask, for everlasting life because I believe Jesus died for me. Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit that brings life and life internal. In Jesus' name, amen.